HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Most people are aware of the poet Emily Dickinson. But did you know that she made a wicked good coconut cake? We'll discover that and a whole lot more of History in the Kitchen today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and oh, the things you can learn on the Internet. But you know, it's really great, too, because someone else does all the research. And if you don't have time, but you want to learn some of those esoteric facts, it's really great when you find a website that you trust. And we all know the pitfalls of doing research on the Internet. But how fun when you find a site that really does its homework and and picks out some of the interesting stories to tell. One such site that I found recently is thehistorykitchen.com. And today I have the editor and curator of that site, Tori Avey, with me. And Tori is an author and a food writer. She is the editor and curator of The History Kitchen. And on that site, she shares food history writing and and has other contributors um, adding to the site with their stories about food history. And I must say, they do their research, and it's it's usually good, solid information. I know, because some of the primary sources that she has on the site have been guests on my show. What could be more secure than that, right? But um, we, it is a site that has beautiful photos, recipes, and I thought it was worth exploring today. Tori is also the current chair of the IACP food history section. That's that's basically how I came across the whole thing. And she has a blog called The Shiksa in the Kitchen, or just theshiksa.com. And I welcome her today. Tori, so nice to have you with me. Hi, Linda. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to uh, talk with you today. Well, tell me, how did you come about getting into uh, researching food history? Well, um, 
goes back pretty far, <laughs> the interest in history in general. It's actually great that we're talking today because um, my grandfather, who was born in 1911, this is his birthday today. Oh, happy birthday. And he, yeah, and he would have been 102 years old, and I really credit him with getting me involved in, in history in general. Um, when I was a kid, I would spend pretty much every other weekend with my grandparents, and they were both fascinated by history. So um, I would spend a lot of time with them. Um, you know, my grandpa had atlases, and he would show me different parts of the world and tell me stories from, you know, what happened in those parts of the world. We would watch historical films like Ben-Hur and Cleopatra. Um, <laughs> We had a garden, and he would love to tell me, you know, historical stories. He would tell me about Thomas Jefferson while we were weeding the garden, you know, and how he had a garden at Monticello. And my grandma was a painter, so she set up an easel for me next to her in the barn. And, you know, I'd be painting with her, and she'd be telling me about the lives of artists that she admired. And so I really grew up, you know, curious about history and about the world beyond this small town where I grew up. So I, I credit them a lot with my interest in history. Um, my interest in food history evolved a little bit later in life. Um, I started kind of uh, um, collecting vintage cookbooks. I, was, <laughs> I became curious about how my great-grandmother would have done things. <clears throat> my great-grandmother lived in Nebraska. <clears throat> Sorry. And um, she, you know, I, I, one day I just got curious about how she would bake a pie. <laughs> hmm. So I tracked down a, a vintage cookbook from Nebraska from 1906, I think maybe 1908, um, just to see, you know, what a recipe would have been like back then. It was a community cookbook from um, a women's guild in Nebraska. And that became the start of kind of an obsession of mine with, you know, vintage cookbooks and food history. I, I like to joke that my library, and you know, this movie Beauty and the Beast, when <laughs> the beast the Beast brings beauty into the library, and it's, you know, books floor to ceiling. That's kind of what my office looks like. <laughs> I have lots of books. Well, it's um, it's interesting because um, there is so much, uh, and I know that you um, have mentioned, too, that we can learn from those vintage cookbooks. And, of course, Barbara Wheaton gives courses on how to read those old recipes, some of those old recipes, and how what we can learn about the kitchen, the times, the, you know, the the politics, the, you know, everything that's going on at that time. I think it is truly um, a, an interesting way to study history, a great way to study oh, history. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a window into what people were like. And I, it, there's something so special about recreating a recipe from the past and being able to taste what those people were tasting, the same flavor. You know, it's, it's just it's an exciting thing right. for me. It's very, well, it's you're, very and when did you start the website? Well, I started um, my first blog, The Shiksa in the Kitchen, um, a little over three years ago. Mm-hmm. And that started as an exploration of Jewish food and Jewish cooking and Jewish food history. As you know, there are so many fantastic Jewish food historians out there. So really, I was looking at the research that had already been done. And then um, doing my own thing in the sense that I would you know, put family stories on there. So I would connect with Jewish families, um, friends, and you know, different people who had their own recipes and their own food stories, and I would blog about those as well as my own, you know, recipes and um, exploration of Jewish cuisine. My husband was born in Israel, so that's kind of what got me started on that. But I found myself more and more interested in, you know, the general food history, and I noticed that readers really connected to it as well. So I started the History Kitchen a little over a year ago as an outgrowth of 
the shiksa in the kitchen so I could broaden my focus in terms of food history and really focus on a broad range of, you know, historical topics, um, vintage cooking, historical cooking, and also the stories that go alongside different ingredients and different recipes. So that's kind of how the History Kitchen evolved. Right, well, and it was one of those things that, uh, you know, through, I don't know whether the IACP, well, you just started a... Um, a Facebook page for the foods history section members yeah. uh, at yeah, AACP, right. right? And I don't know whether it was through that or you know, and just links from other things. I just kind of stumbled upon, as I say, your site, and I was so happy I did because there are so many delightful stories, and also interesting, um, you know, historical so- stories that said, hmm, you know, turned a light bulb on here and there. And I will say yes. you don't have a, there's not one particular period you cover, not one theme. You're all over the place on that. How do you, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in a, in, in a nice way, in a good way, because, you know, we, you know, we, we change about a lot. And, and as I say, it's, it's nice. You do um, give your sources, uh, which I credit, and I uh, credit you for that, because so often, you know, you, people will uh, give out information as though it's gospel, and you find out, wait a minute, wait a minute, where, where did that come from? How do you know that? It's, you know? it's a great point. You know, I talked with this about Gil Marks. Um, Gil Marks, I think, has been a guest of yours. In the yes, past. he has. Uh-huh. He's fantastic, and he's one of my contributors on the History Kitchen. And we were talking in New York a little over a year ago about um, his term for it is bubamysis, and it's a <laughs> Yiddish term, and it roughly translates to wives' tales. And basically, it's, it's mythology. It's those little tidbits knowledge that are, you know, they're kind of spouted as facts with any real grounding in reality. And sometimes those facts have been around for centuries, you know, and it takes the work of, the hard work of historians to debunk them. Right. As I say, it's so nice when someone else does the research for you. You want to know a little something about, um, you know, it may happen to be on your site. It's still very new, so, you, you know, it's, you don't have that big of an index yet, but, um, you know, and you want to find out a little something and a nice story behind it. You've done the research. It's there. And not only that, but you also have recipes to accompany many of them, which I think is oh. wonderful. <laughs> well, thank you. You know what? I'm really, I'm, I'm enjoying it. And I'm so glad you noticed the research that goes into it because, you know, I, I, it's really important to me that the, the research be solid on the site. And that's why I have open commenting. I want people to point out if they feel like there's something that they disagree with. You mm-hmm. know, I have a lot of academics reading the site and I want to make sure that everything is really accurate. Um, it can be difficult, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm not, I don't have a PhD in culinary anthropology. This is not, I, I'm, I, I look at myself as more a pop historian. So mm-hmm. I feel like I'm, I'm more like a conduit for the fantastic research that academics have done and bringing that to the masses in a way that, um, I'm, I'm going to make a pun, it's early in the morning, <laughs> but it, it, it's easy to digest. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, I think that, you know, it's important to, make sure that whatever sources I'm using are some of the best peer-reviewed sources out there. And, you know, I'll go beyond that, and I'll, I'll, I do a lot of primary sources, too. Like, I'm thinking about a white bean soup I did, um, Thomas Jefferson. There's a manuscript at Monticello that his granddaughters put together of recipes. And I had found a transcription of the recipe um, in a book called Dining at Monticello, which is a fantastic book. It was put together by Damon Lee Fowler, and Karen Hess helped him. We all know the work of Karen mm-hmm. Hess fantastic historian. So I knew it was a reliable transcription, but um, it bugged me that I didn't have the actual recipe in front of me. So I contacted the archives, the Jefferson archives, 
um, and was able to, after several weeks of waiting, I was able to get a scan of the original recipe and the handwriting of the granddaughters, which was very special to me um, oh, yeah. to actually see that, you know, that writing in front of me. It's just, it's kind of haunting in a way, you know, to be able to see those people so long ago passing down a recipe that now I can pass to the masses through the website. So, right. Well, how, tell me, um, how do you choose your topics? You know, well, for me, because I, I do most of the posts on the site myself, so I'm looking at inspiration all around me all the time. I mean, um, we, you mentioned Emily Dickinson, and that kind of came to me. I was just reading an article about an exhibit that was happening at the Poets' House in New York City, mm-hmm. and they had an Emily Dickinson um, exhibit going on, and I love Emily Dickinson's poetry. So I was just reading about the exhibit, and I stumbled across they had one of her recipes, and I thought, Emily Dickinson had recipes? <laughs> I, I was shocked, you know? Right. I, didn't know I didn't know that she liked to cook. So that's, uh, that started the whole thing, and then I started doing research into it and found that there was a great story there. She actually loved to bake. She was very into baking. And um, so, you know, it's just, it, I come across things in the news um, when I'm out and about. And also with people, I ask questions. Oftentimes I find fantastic stories from people and their family food history, um, so there's inspiration everywhere. You just have to look for it. Right. Well, as people will learn if um, when they go to your site, uh, you cover everything from um, you know the history of an American pineapple upside down cake to Leonardo da Vinci's uh, kitchen and eating habits. I mean, so you, it really spans uh, you know a, a, quite a period of time and and many continents as well. Well, one of the things that fascinates me the most is really um, connecting to a person, a historical person, and seeing what that person was eating or cooking or doing in their lifetime, because um, great people in history are, you know, food fueled them. So what is it that fueled these people that we read about today in history books and that made such great changes in our history? Um, I'm working on a piece right now about um, famous vegetarians in history, and so I'm reading a biography of Benjamin Franklin, and, you know, he was such a fascinating personality in so many ways, but it, it fascinates me that he was a vegetarian for many years of his life, and why right. did he make that choice, you know? So uh, I think there are so many stories out there um, to be found. You just have to, you really have to dig for them, but um, I have fun doing it. Absolutely, know? absolutely. Um, and when uh, you just recently started adding some um, some people, some contributors to help yeah. out with the site. Now, do you just do they just um, come up with an idea that they want? I know someone like Gil Marks is, is you know a very trusted source. So, do you feed him some ideas, or does he just come up with something he wants that he's been doing research? Gil Marks, bless his heart, has ideas from here to eternity. <laughs> he's amazing. He's a font of knowledge. This man, um, he's been researching American cakes for the past few years, um, the history of American cakes, and um, he's actually working on a book about it. So when I approached him about doing a column on the History Kitchen, I really left it up to him what he would like to write about, and he suggested American Cakes, which I loved and connected to. Mm-hmm. Um, I love American history. So he decided to write a column about, you know, each column's a different cake and really go into the deep history of that cake. And you'll be fascinated. I mean, it's, it's amazing when you read some of these, you know, the history of pineapple upside-down cake. <laughs> it just You would think it's just a kitschy vintage recipe, but it really goes back pretty far, and so it's just, it's also interesting what he's 
I know he got um, uh, quite a, a lot of um, hits and good comments on his strawberry shortcake during strawberry season as well. <laughs> that was yeah. Great. yeah. We, tr- we try to pick, I mean, we, we decide together what the columns are going to be about, but he gives me ideas and then I say, yeah, go with that. And we really try to stick to seasonal stuff, mm-hmm. um, things that people can enjoy and make based on holidays that are coming up or different dates. Sometimes there's, you know, these um, national food holidays that they come up with. So, you know, National Cheese Day, National Grilled Cheese Day, you know, there's always something going on. So sometimes we'll connect it to one of those or, you know, obviously like it was strawberry season, so strawberry shortcake was very timely. Yeah. Well, you did a piece recently and, and you and I had discussed uh, the possibility of talking about um, chicken and waffles or fried chicken. I'm, I am going to be doing um, a piece on, on fried chicken. It's just you know, as I said, just enjoyed such a renaissance lately, and it's everywhere. You yeah, can't open a magazine really without has. looking at fried chicken on the cover. But you actually did a piece on chicken and waffles, and what? Wow, what made you choose that? Uh, well, and I what was the history Los- behind it? Yeah, I live in Los Angeles, and um, pretty close to Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles, which is one of the probably the most famous chicken and waffle restaurants in the country. And I just got curious about the pairing. It's such an odd pairing when you think about it, you know, but it really works. Have you ever had it? Yes, of course. Yeah, And it's we have a delicious. lot of great chicken and waffle places in Brooklyn, especially. <laughs> yeah, well, that's where it all kind of started in um, Harlem, you know. So this whole, this whole pairing just was really interesting to me. Um, and, you know, I went in a little bit into the history of fried chicken, but then, you know, what was more interesting to me was the pairing between the two. So um, I guess, you know, it's... It, it was. It started in Harlem, and then it. You know, you would think it was southern, but it really wasn't. It. It. it although it spread to the south, and now it's all through the country. It's, it's kind of a trend now. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, it was the Wells Supper Club is where it started. Hmm. Well, hopefully, on our fried chicken segment, we'll debunk some of the uh, the myths surrounding the fried chicken alone. But uh, that's oh, I'm sure that, that and many. that's the fun. Yeah, that's the fun. Well, as you said, the. Um, you know, the folk tales, the old wives' tales surrounding a lot of food and culinary history. As much research as, as one can do on maybe a particular food or, or um, trend, a lot of it still remains folk history or, you know, old wives' tales because um, often it's, it's hard to get back to the, the roots. It's always like, well, supposedly, and then there are battles, you know, people <laughs> arguing who started what, you know. Spirited debates, yeah. yeah <laughs> there are yeah. many of those, yeah. But that's what's fun about it. It's, it's a big puzzle. The further back you go, the harder it is to crack what the truth really was, you know. So um, I find it very fun. I mean, it's like one big puzzle to me. So. Yes. Well, when Leonardo da Vinci popped up on your site, I said, well, okay, maybe I better <laughs> stop and read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's, there's a debate with him about whether he was a vegetarian. A lot of people say he was, and some people say there's no proof of that. So, mm-hmm. but... Um, based on, you know, another person of his time period mentioning that he was in a letter, people say, well, he must have been, but who knows how reliable the person who wrote that letter was, you know? <laughs> That's so, right. It's, um, it's fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we are going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about Emily Dickinson and this coconut cake, so stay tuned. You're listening to Southern Pretender on the Heritage Radio Network.org. There are still a few tickets left to our annual fundraiser. This year it's the HRN Hawaiian Barbecue. Check it out. Get your tickets now. 
If our life depend on it, so political White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship, the humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. Hey, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm talking with Tori Avey. Tori is an author and food writer and editor, curator of thehistorykitchen.com. Tori, um, Tori's History Kitchen articles are also syndicated bi-monthly on PBS Food, which I thought was something worth mentioning for those who um, would like to read more about it. And Tori, you did some research into Emily Dickinson because you ran across an exhibit that was happening uh, here in New York City at the Poets' House. Um, and she, it turns out that Emily Dickinson liked to bake, huh? It's a solid, it's a, it's a solitary activity. I can understand that. <laughs> you know, it, it, I connected so much with this story because when, I, when I'm in the kitchen and I'm cooking, I really, it's almost like a meditation for me. I don't know about you, but, you know, when I'm putting stuff together, particularly when I'm baking, it's such a, you know, it's a long process and there are long times to wait while things rise and then cook. And so um, I connected to this because what fascinated me the most about this story is that they found an actual recipe in her handwriting that she had gotten for coconut cake. And then on the back is a, is a draft of a poem um, called The Things That ne- Never Can Come Back Are Several. So that's, that's a poem that she started writing that now we know as a poem of hers. Um, she started writing it in the kitchen while she was baking probably coconut cake, you know? Right. So, so that really connected me. It, ma- it made her feel so real to me. She yeah. wasn't just this historical figure. She was a person who had, you know, and I don't know how much you know about Emily Dickinson, but she was um, a bit of an agoraphobe. She didn't yes. go out very much. <laughs> very reclusive. So, um, you know, she baked a lot, and it was kind of her connection to her community. She would, um, even though she was, afraid to go out or she didn't go out much, she would send baked goods out to the community to connect with people. She would send um, gingerbread to the little kids. She would actually lower them in baskets to the street below to the little kids of the neighborhood. (laughs) And so it was her way to kind of connect to people, even though she was in this house. So I think a lot of the things we believe about Emily or have been told about Emily um, aren't so true about her personality. I think that she did want to connect with people. There was just some sort of a fear there, you know? Right. Well, certainly um, uh, baking is a, a wonderful way to uh, to get out a lot of 
thoughts. I mean, I do my, I do a lot of my best thinking when I'm in the kitchen baking. You know, some people say the shower, but for me, it's you know, as you mentioned, it's a long process, so you have time to think about, come up with all these great ideas. Sometimes they burn up in the oven, and the ideas along with them. <laughs> exactly. I find the most come to me. I, I bake challah a lot because um, I'm a convert to Judaism, and I just love challah bread. So challah is really a meditation for me, in, in the sense that you know there are two rising periods to let it. Um, rise and get nice and fluffy and then you've got the braiding so you're you're rolling these you know long strips of dough and then braiding them into a beautiful design and then baking it it's really an all-day process it takes a long time and i find it extremely relaxing um and my mind goes all kinds of places when i'm doing that so i I definitely connect with emily on that level (laughs) all right um well i would like to post now you reworked her recipe to work for the modern kitchen to work out a little better um, yeah, I would like to. Po- I, I really didn't change it too much. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I know. I compared it to the you know the handwritten one, and and it didn't yeah. look. Yeah, you, know, you didn't change any quantities. And I'd like to post that for our our listeners. They can go to the the show page, and they can get that recipe, and they can cook the cake. And it's not your usual coconut cake. This is a loaf cake, right? It's it's a Small, loaf cake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I did that because she said um, this makes one half the rule. And I think that the full rule probably would have been a full cake. That's my assumption anyway. So um, it fit into a large loaf pan very nicely. And, it's it, you know, it's not a light and fluffy cake in the sense that we might think of coconut cake today. It's a little bit denser. It's very crusty on the outside. And I find it very delicious. I yeah. think it goes great with coffee or tea. It's not overly sweet. Well, I'm thinking it's good for the summertime berry season. Uh-huh, great. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. some fresh yeah, yeah. berries and whipped cream on there. My goodness. <laughs> That'll be delicious. <laughs> yeah, well, great. We'll do that. And, and our uh, listeners can, when they um, click on to heritageradionetwork.org, A Taste of the Past, they'll see that on, on this show page. Um, uh, what I'd like to ask you, if you, you know, there's so many people who ask me all the time through the, the show and otherwise, like, how how do you go about studying culinary history or food history? What, How do you get into it? What would you recommend to somebody wanting to learn more about food history? What should they do? You know, this is going to sound like the simplest answer in the world, but go to the library. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really my answer. I mean, it's, it's about reading and getting familiar with what's out there. There is so much great research, so many great authors who have done fantastic work, and if you're unsure about, you know, how reliable a source is, go online and see what other people are saying about it. People don't hold back <laughs> on their criticism online. So if, you know, there are plenty of reviews of texts out there and you can kind of get a feeling for what is good and what is not, what is reliable and what is not. And, well, uh, I couldn't agree with you more about, about reading and going to the library. And once again, I, I caution people about just doing online research without knowing the sources or or comparing sources or doing a, a you know a, a further search and please don't use a wikipedia as a mm. main source mm. <laughs> that's another one that i warn people about you know because right. it's so it's so tempting to do it because it's usually the first thing that pops up when you're researching a topic but um I attended an incredible session at IACP at the last conference in San Francisco with Ken Albala where um, they were talking about, you know, different research methods, and I was amazed at how many people were using Wikipedia as a reliable source when you have to remember that's, that's you know, a source that is edited by the public. So really, anybody can go in there and edit it, you know. That's right. You don't know if it's all reliable. I mean, it can be helpful to lead you to further sources if you look at the bibliography, but it's not a place where you should trust that everything that's there is fact because there are many um, 
many fallacies on Wikipedia. Right. So. Well, and, and you just mentioned bibliographies. If you find an art, if one someone, if you find an article that you like about food history, go to the back of the book, go to the bibliography, and then it's sort of like you know one thing leads to another. You'll find many more books on it, and that's why I said I I was so appreciative that you listed your sources. Um, for your articles, because then it can help people go and read more about this particular topic. It, certainly, you can't fit everything into a half-hour radio show, and you can't fit everything into a, you know, into a a, a short blog post. But yeah, you and can, sometimes I have to stop myself from going further and further, you know, because right. I could go on for hours right. <laughs> on a topic, but there's only so much that you know the general public will be interested in. So. Yeah, you have to you have to only put forward the most interesting points, and then if people want to do more, there's 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 the bibliography. Go mm-hmm. check it out yourself. You know, right? Well, you lead people down a very good path, and I commend you for the work that you do. And it's it's also a very pretty sight to look at. And, oh, thank uh, you so much. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And, and the rest of the standards. My yeah. web well, designer, she's amazing. That's great. Well, I you know, urge people to take a look at thehistorykitchen.com. And also Schick's in the Kitchen, fun. And um, and then check out Emily Dickinson's recipe on A Taste of the Past website. Uh, not website, but our show page on heritageradionetwork.org. Tori, thank you so much for being with me, and good Linda, luck. Could I just, before we go, could sure. I just mention one thing? Because as the IACP Food History Section Chair, I have to mention that um, if anybody who is interested in food history or research is interested in connecting with other historians, please check out IACP. We have a conference in 2014, um, March 14th through 17th in Chicago. Some of the best historians in the country are going to be there meeting and talking about food history and sharing knowledge. So I really urge people to check it out if they can. Good point. Okay. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.